Welcome to Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina. It's such a pleasure today to be here with a, a local legend, a historian, somebody who has commanded a great amount of respect for all of the wonderful work that he has invested in this community. And we're going to talk to Dr. Gerald Jackman today, former Executive Director of the Santa Barbara Trust for Historic Preservation, and this incredible new book he has out, Santa Barbara's Royal Presidio, The Rise, Fall, and Rebirth of Spain's Last Adobe Fortress. And I'm really looking forward to an education. How are you, Dr. Jackman? Great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate uh, your interest in the book and also Newsfox interest and I want to thank Bill McFadden, who's uh, kind of supported it when I even did a few uh, articles, well, more than a few on the book before it even came out about a year ago. So happy to be here. Great. Thank you. It's such a pleasure. You are the go-to guy, the local historian. And let's talk a little bit about your book and, and what it is and what it means. Um, you've been doing the the tour a little bit. I know you spoke <laughs> Chaucer's, and uh, you've been telling people about this book and what it is. So why don't you just tell us, why did you write this book, and what can people expect to learn when they buy it? Well, well, thank you. Uh, well, I had, when I first retired, I really didn't have any thought about writing this up, but then a friend of mine who's a fellow historian, Alfred Runty, uh, he's written a, a definitive work on the history of national parks, and he said, you know, you have a real story to tell about how a state park was born, how it was created, and where it is today. And uh, and so I kind of took that to heart. And my wife said, well, you put a lot of time in there. You like to write. Why don't you do this? So between those two people, I decided to go ahead and do it. And, uh, you know, it just sort of flowed out, the whole thing. And I, I uh, just sat during COVID. It really started uh, just as COVID was kicking in and what were you going to do you can't go anywhere why, why not sit in front of your computer and write uh, about your past which I did but it's more than that it's I really wanted to acknowledge all the hard work that went into the Presidio project so I was there for a number of years but there were a lot of other people before I ever got there mo almost entirely volunteers who uh, got that project off the ground it was Pearl Chase everybody Santa Barbara that knows a little bit about its history knows about Pearl Chase. And she was really the, the founder of the Santa Barbara Trust for Historic Preservation and really got that project going back around 1963. But it even goes back earlier than that. In the late 50s, she was working with state parks, trying to get an interest in creating a, a state park, which eventually did happen. So that's kind of how it, that's the genesis of why I wrote the book. Uh, but again, as I say, it's not just about Jerry Jackman. It's about uh, the efforts that went into creating that park that's there today. And it wasn't all that easy. Uh, there were politics. There were, you know, uh, there's a lot of research that had to go into it. There, you know, then they have to raise the money, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, it it, uh, it really is kind of an interesting story. And I've had some of the people who were involved with the project to say that I've captured it, they feel, and I, that makes me feel good because a lot of those people that I knew uh, were involved as long as I was, and they feel like I've told the story and given it some meaning, extra meaning. So that's good. That's good. Yeah. You know, your your book talks about 
the original uh, creation of this Adobe building and that history. But so much of the rest of it is about, obviously, the uh, restoration of it and the, the process going through that and leading that effort. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like to be the executive director for the trust during this period? Because I think we tend to you know, if we're locals, we sort of are aware of the Presidio. We know a little bit about the history. Tourists, obviously, come into town. It is one of the big icons in Santa Barbara. So to restore it has some meaning and some impact. But with anything that's meaningful, there's controversy. So can you talk a little bit about the the planning, uh, you know, sort of the the pushback, the, the the citizens who were concerned about whether this was too expensive? I mean, what are some of those stories of having to usher in this reconstruction, yeah. this renovation? Well, uh, I have to be honest, I had no idea what I was getting into when I was hired <laughs> for this job. Uh, I had been teaching in Europe. Uh, I'd gone over my background as primarily German history. I wrote a dissertation on uh, the intellectuals, writers, et cetera, who escaped Nazi Germany, ended up in Southern California. And I wrote a book on uh, my dissertation. And I also did a book called The Muses Flee Hitler. I edited a book on the uh, Smithsonian. So then we were hit, my family and I were in D.C. And I, I decided uh, that I wanted to come back to California. And my wife said, ah, well, we can go back to California. But I only, she had a really good job uh, at that point working for the Pentagon. And and uh, she said, only if we live in Santa Barbara. So uh, I said, okay, well, we'll give it a shot. So we moved back to Santa Barbara. I started teaching down in LA at Occidental College, by the way, same time that Barack Obama was a student there. And, uh, and then... Uh, I interviewed for this job because I was going back and forth. I taught at Cal State LA too. Um, and I got hired on this job because I had some public history experience in Virginia while we lived there. And then, so uh, I was hired and then it was kind of going along. I studied the Presidio in the first few months. And then we, we decided to, we wanted to buy a particular property where the front gate of the Presidio is. And uh, by the time I had arrived, almost half of the Presidio property uh, in the downtown area had been acquired. So a lot, of, a lot had been going on, mostly in terms of acquisition with California State Parks. But that last, when I arrived, that acquisition of the front gate triggered uh, a response from the local community because uh, Gary Hart, who was then an assemblyman, said, well, I'm, I'm happy to support this, but I want to make sure that that uh, the community supports it. So take it to this to the city council and get them, you know, uh, behind it if they're behind it. And people showed up in opposition to it, and uh, that began. This was 1981 or so, and uh, into 1982, and that uh, political process went on for another five years. As you know, Santa Barbara, you just don't do something overnight. We went through a hundreds, I'd say hundreds of meetings on on how much Presidio should be built, if any more should be built. They're working on the Padres quarters at the time. And uh, so uh, I was doing all sorts of meetings and asking myself, well, this is not what I expected, but it is very interesting. And uh, all the people I worked with were very committed to it. Um, 
they were committed to a, an accurate uh, restoration and telling the story of the Presidio, which is not always great, I mean, because of the Indian relations, but the Indian relations even were unique uh, with this particular Presidio, and that's part of the story that I that I tell in the book. But it went on and on for a number of years, and we finally got a general plan. Believe it or not, all this controversy started in 1982, and it really uh, didn't come to a head and get uh, the denouement was really 1988-89, six years we were going through the process. But in the meantime, we had enough uh, community support that we built rebuilt the uh, Presidio Chapel, which I think today is still one of the best things that the trust and happened for the community. It's still a, a very much used facility besides being a, a beautiful architectural addition uh, to the city. So... That's kind of how it started. And then, of course, you know, you mentioned all the restoration projects, a very complicated process to go through uh, to rebuild the Presidio. Uh, you start out with archaeology, uh, and we had some really good people. We had some archaeological programs that went on with the university. And uh, we did we had some amateur archaeology uh as well, young uh, young people and other people involved with uh, actually finding the foundations. And we had this map of the Presidio that was done by a Comandante. Believe it or not, this original map, one of them, actually it's a second map that, that he did, ended up at, it's a ground plan of the Presidio, ended up at the Newberry Library in Chicago. And that map, I don't know exactly how that happened, but, it, but somebody had acquired it on the open market and then donated it to this Newberry Library. That map was really one of the most accurate maps of any Presidio because it did everything on, on the rooms, the size of the rooms, the material used, what the rooms were used for. And then we took that map, an engineer who was retired, uh, Dick Whitehead, who was the planning director, he took that plan and he laid it over the city grid and found, found when we found a foundation, then would match it up with the rooms there. And we found out exactly where the Presidio lay. Uh, the foundations were on the four blocks, unfortunately. Uh, two city streets, uh, Santa Barbara and Cana Perdido, cut right through those, those uh, foundations. And that's part of the controversy right there that we were eventually proposing to close the streets. So... Uh, but that map was really important, along with the foundations, and then we would put that together with other research and and then start to design buildings. And then sometimes uh, the foundations were missing because they'd been taken out by the streets or for other reasons. Uh, and so we had to use the map and then other research to design the buildings. And it would take a long time to do. You say, oh, well, you can just do that. And no, it takes a long time to do archaeology get a report, you know, back, study that report, compare it to your other documents, then bring in an architect to design the building and uh, think about, you know, what was there historically, and then make adobe bricks. And uh, we ended up, during my time there, making over 100,000 adobe bricks. And they're, they're, you know, 55 pounds each. So, do 55 pounds times 100,000 bricks, and you realize how much earth we are are moving around. And what's really fun about it is that when we did archaeology, the walls had melted down, right? 
and and covered the original foundations. Then the archaeologists had dug up these foundations and kept the earth, which was meltdown from the original adobe bricks, right? And we recast those that earth back into adobe bricks. Now we still had to import soil because there you know there wasn't enough to make a hundred thousand adobe bricks, but but I'd say at least a third to a half of the earth that we used uh, was originally adobe bricks that had melted down. So then we had to make them. And the question was, who's going to make them? And and uh, we found an adobe maker, Tim Aguilar. Uh, we actually did it by volunteers before him, but he ended up making probably 90,000 with a small team of maybe two to three people. And then Prior to, to his coming on, we had the California Conservation Corps. They were responsible for making around thirty to 40,000 of those bricks. And you must have seen them. Others certainly did. Uh, we put those bricks, made them right there on the site, dried them. Then we had to use uh, emulsified, uh, let's call it emulsified uh, oil, to stabilize the bricks because we didn't put them in the building right away. And if you don't do that, then the bricks start to melt away. Uh, so then we'd have to put some emulsified asphalt in there. And then we would start to gradually rebuild one building at a time because we would do the chapel, do the archaeology, put it all together, do the plans. Then we'd go to another section, et cetera. So you know, that each each phase took a, you know three to five years to, to make it happen. And uh, so it was a slow process. I think that was beneficial to the community too, because it wasn't one of these big slam it down and here it is. It was watching it evolve. And for a lot of us appreciating what it took to build that original uh, fort on the frontier in the in the late 18th century. So I've, I've gone on here rather too much for the question. But as you can tell, I get kind of excited about it even five years or so retired. So you know, it's incredible to watch and it, it's easy to listen. Let me ask you a couple of things. Maybe you could be a little more specific when you talk about the meetings that you had to attend. Are you going through at this time state review? Is this local review? Is this uh, uh historic landmarks commission who you're going before? Can you talk about what, who is, who's coming to these meetings and saying not who individually, but just the, the what is the opposition what were they upset about? What were the challenge of trying to push this through and build community support? Well, for, that's the first part of your question, all of the above. Yeah. We, we worked with Landmarks Committee, but uh, State Parks was the controlling agent because they were buying the land. Yeah. And of course, you know, California government could come in and if they wanted to try to say, we're going to build this Presidio, no matter what you say locally, but that was not... Gary Hart was our representative, and then later Jack O'Connell. And if you saw the book, we have a picture of them with one of our key board members. They actually were positive about the project, but they felt that the community needed to have input. So they kind of shifted it over to the city, and the city held most of the meetings, right? Uh, so, you know, we were just going, at first we said we're going to build this amount of the Presidio, and then then we did a phased version of it and took it to the city and also you know state representatives were always there so they were always in accord with what we were presenting because we were representing the state and in a way we were representing the city and we would would take the the uh phases and show them 
And uh, so over time, uh, there, there, we kind of built some support for at least three phases of building the Presidio. We never got to the point where anybody would agree to closing any streets. Although these days the car seems to be an enemy, so maybe there may be a different attitude about it. So what, were, what was the opposition? Well, I won't I won't name any names because, but I did respect those people because I'm a historian and I know that history is subjective. It's not uh, there isn't a rightness to it, you know, that everybody one person has the truth. Uh, the opposition was well, one environmentally, we're going to close streets, and this is going to cause traffic jams and. And do we really want this in downtown Santa Barbara? And so we did some traffic studies on that. Uh, the other opposition was, hey, you know, there's other history there, right? There's uh, uh, there's Japanese history, there's wow. Chinese history, uh, there's, uh, you know, there's the Whitaker building, there was a Chinese building, there's Jimmy's Oriental Gardens, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I took pause with that. I thought that, you know, there, there, was, there was a truth to that. There was other history there. And so... I personally took on making sure that that other history was interpreted and became part of any plan for the future. Uh, and I, 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 I'm not necessarily patting myself on the back here, but just acknowledging that I did go out and uh, involve the Japanese community in the Presidio project. And we put on a huge event. I think it was 96. It was called Nihomachi Revisit or Japantown Revisit. And we, brought in, uh, you know, many of the people who were still here from the original Japanese community. Mashimoto, our then, who was our aging gardener at the time, had he was also a member of this community, and he was actually interned. So I, I brought in students. I have a PhD from UC Santa Barbara. We brought in students from the public history program, and they uh, wrote histories of Japanese, Chinese, and various other uh institutions that were in in this area during that time period and we published that book so we, we acknowledged it and as time went by when the general plan came came out and was a finally approved we we ended up with three phases and that that has not been completed yet but at least two of them have been completed and uh and the history is that we will always interpret uh the other periods of history including the chinese and you know I was still there when when uh, Jimmy's was sold, right? And uh, Jimmy's Oriental Gardens, and the, the son was the one who was selling it, and he wanted the trust to own it, right? Mm -hmm. Santa Barbara Trust. We were the agent for the state, and he had when, when he put it up for sale, uh, there were higher offers than the trust, but he chose the trust to be the owner because he thought that we would be the ones that could preserve the history better than even though. Uh, some people thought we had the reputation of only thinking about the Presidio. So we purchased it. After I've left, there's been some interpretation in the bar. We've reopened the bar, uh, which uh, is one of the more popular places. And the per the person, Bob Lovejoy, who restored the bar, he restored it to what exactly what was there in the 1950s uh, when when Jimmy was still around. And uh, the only thing different is they took the sign from outside that said Jimmy's Oriental Garden because he didn't want that there anymore. The son didn't, Tommy Chung. And we put it on the inside of the bar. But everything else inside the bar has been recreated as it was in the 1950s. Plus, 
there's some uh, family history on the walls. They're acknowledging it. So, so we had this journey, uh, Josh. Uh, okay, the first people thought we're interested in in the Presidio. Then, you know, as time went by, I came along. I'm a historian. Uh, I said, you know, there's other, and I'm not just the only one, but the trust realized that there was some other history, and then we brought that together into the story of the Presidio. And we, we ended up with something pretty good, I think. Although I think there's more reconstruction that could be done. And I talk about that in the last uh, chapter of the book. Yeah. You know, you mentioned in your Chaucer's talk that you had sort of a, a moment where there was such opposition to this project that somebody had found their way into your office and was very upset about something and you asked them to leave. Can you tell us that story and what they were so uh, opposed over, uh, what would they, what, what was the problem? <laughs> uh, well, that per- person was, I think, unbalanced. I, I mean, I do think he had some, had some emotional problems. He never came to any of the meetings, but he wrote letters in opposition to the Presidio. And uh, I guess he just did, he, he saw it as fake. Hmm. Uh, he said, oh, you have real you have real history there and you're going to put fake history there in its place. Uh, and uh, he was pretty adamant about it. And so uh, I don't think he came to anything. Well, if he came to meetings, he sat in the back row of the city council. I, I, I don't remember seeing him there, but I did. I did know who he was. And I, I, I knew when he came into my office. Anyway, I was sitting there in my office one day and. And we're in the heat of this, all this stuff. And he comes charging into my office and said, this, this Presidio is really a terrible thing. And it's really horrible. I don't remember exact, exact, exact words. And I sat there listening to him for, you know, 10, 15 minutes. And I finally said, you know, you really, really have to leave. He's, and he just was kind of pounding his fist on the, on my desk, as I remember. And I said, I have to call the police. And so I picked up the phone. And he grabbed the phone out of my hand and slammed it down. And then he ran out of the office. That was the last time I ever saw him that I can remember. But he did write a big, long letter to the state that he didn't like. Well, that, Josh, you've been involved with politics. I mean, you know that people can get pretty intense. But yeah. that was probably one of the most intense moments. Are the other people, you know, who were, who were there, there were some, some people, you know, in the politi- political heat of a battle... People say say things they shouldn't say, and uh, you know you kind of you're taken aback by them. But then, as time goes by, you realize that they honestly believe what they believe in most cases. So you know, I got to accept it. But it was it was a lot of tension there, I have to say, and and that went along with it. At the same time, I was able to do research, and the same time, I was able to help the trust build a staff. I think. Today, they have something like 20 employees. When we started, there were three of us, an office manager and a secretary, and then part-time maintenance people, et cetera. And now, we have, now they have a pretty pretty large full-time staff. And, and a lot of uh, donations came in. Pearl Chase's estate benefited the trust, uh, did a lot of grant writing. Uh, Charles Stark, you know, the... The uh, son of Tom Stork was very much involved with the Casa de la Guerra. And, you know, the book does have a, a other things in there besides the Presidio. It talks about uh, the de la Guerra restoration that Charles Stork supported over the years and the de la Guerra Plaza, 
which is you know front and center right now, as you know. Yeah. And we, we actually did a major publication on De La Guerra Plaza reconsidered, and I write about that in the book. And for the public, that that I do think that that uh, publication we did is very valuable yeah. as we work towards a solution at De La Guerra Plaza. So you see, we're involved with lots of things, and then we did the San Inez Mills, but I'm not sure we'll have time to talk about that today. Yeah, I uh, I have that Plaza de la Guerra reconsidered book around here sometime someplace. I remember I did a story back at the news press when it was was out. I think uh, Al Conklin uh, gave me gave it to me, or was he must? I think he may have been involved with this. I'm having this flashbacks to twenty yeah, years absolutely. ago. Well, no, I see. I worked with a lot of Tom Rogers, Sheila Lodge. Uh, these, these people were uh, Hal Conklin. These people were all city council members when we were hot and heavy in the, in the planning the Presidio project. And I got to know them. And Hal, God bless him, uh, he was very helpful to the Presidio with getting some funding for archaeology through the city. We had, see, there were actual agreements that Pearl Chase worked out between the trust, the state, the city, and the county. And uh, a, a couple of those agreements uh the city and the county actually put small amounts of funding into the Presidio project. That Pearl Chase was something else. <laughs> she knew how to get things done, that's for sure. So, Let me ask you to sort of um, pontificate from your historian perspective here. Um, you know, you spent all this time writing this book. It's a, an accumulation and, and summary of uh, your work at the Trust. Uh, you, you know, you talk about the history you talk about the political efforts, the reconstruction, the the the, the bricks, and and all of everything. What is the uh, what's the lesson that you want people to take from this? Uh, this is not just um, here's a little bit of history of Santa Barbara. People who read this book, what do you want them to take away from it? What should they know? Why why does it matter? Why is it important from your perspective that you'd put so much time into this effort? Well, that's a, that's a that's a heavy question, and uh, I I tell you what, uh, history is complex, and that's one thing. You know, we, we all use it to support our point of view. You know, we, but I think what's really required is that the, I learned the lessons that the Presidio project is was very complex. There were a lot of things to think about. Uh, I, I'm a believer in the in the project itself, but I also am a believer that other points of view uh, are important to understand and to to think about. And they, then you come up with the result that the Presidio project is today. Uh, I also I I also think that uh, this Adobe world is very interesting. Uh, that it, we're we're into sustainability, and I try to make the point at the at the end. That uh, you know that there is a, some history there that we should. It's more than just the history, but the his, the sustainability that Adobe represents. Now, Adobe is not necessarily the best uh, material for California in certain areas with earthquakes, but huh. as long as it's a one one story building, Adobe is a is a a usable method of sustainability for the future. And I do talk about that. I think that's really important. Uh, the other thing is that the relationship between the Indians and the soldiers is much more complex than than people want to take it. It's it's bad conquistadores coming into Santa Barbara, conquering the 
the Chumash Indians and so forth. Actually, there was a tremendous relationship between the Indians and the, and the soldiers. The soldiers who came here, half of them, half of them were were either what we call mixed blood. They 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 had Indian or Spanish blood. Some of them there were a quarter of the population. Well, twenty percent of the po original population was African. Uh, they're actually lifted listed as as African. We have a we have a, a record from uh, 1790 of who the soldiers were, and they're listed by racial background. So there was only one person at the Presidio in 1790 who was born in Spain, and he he was a servant to the Comandante. <laughs> the Comandante was actually born in Mexico. So by the time the so-called Spanish got here, uh, there was really a, a, a mixed bag of people, and this diversity that we celebrate today was represented in the soldiers who were there. And at the same time, uh, there was a relationship with the Indians, and we can't go into detail here, uh, of them uh, working together it was very uh, unique. Uh, and I do have a section in the book, I don't know if you remember seeing it, that one of the children of Yananali, we have a Yananali street, one of the children of Yananali died at five years old, and he was, it was eventually buried in the ch chapel today. And most, um, almost 100% of the Indians were buried in common graves. But here is one example of an Indian who was buried in the Presidio Chapel because of a relationship with Jan and Ali, I believe, and the Comandante. And uh, I think that's a very compelling story that comes out of this history of, of the Presidio. And uh, also just some of the other things. And I do think the story of, of uh, De La Guerra and the, the De La Guerra Plaza, I think the trust has provided a lot of historical background that's really valuable. And then going to North County, I, I do think the trust, uh, we went in and purchased uh, the San Inez Mission Mills. And there is a real story of, of fulling, which people don't know about. That's the processing of wool, uh, a kind of whole history there that will be interpreted out there in the future. So I think there's a lot in there uh, uh, that I think is very valuable. I think is a very valuable uh, some lessons uh, that can be learned and some history that people will find history. Like some of my friends say that I have a nice, easy style, easy to read, but to telling a complex story. Well, I like that. I hope that is the case. And that's kind of my goal. Yeah, no, that's great. I'm glad I asked that question because that's that really learned so much there about the many layers of uh, a book, you know, what's in the book and different ways to interpret the information. Let me ask you a question, uh, Dr. Jackman, about what's happening in, in Santa Barbara now. Um, you're a historian. Obviously, you know about all of the, the battles that uh, this community has had um, over preservation of the community and adjusting to the changing needs of a community. And we have housing debates and we have issues about um, how to preserve Santa Barbara's quaint charm and promote tourism and all of that. We have a historic landmarks commission that sees a lot of these issues. Um, when you sort of look at Santa Barbara right now, are you comfortable? Are you happy? You, you know, are we doing a good job of preserving our our history, or do you feel as though um, you know we're just going to fall to state mandates and 
you know, it's all too late at this point. Um, you know, we got to just sort of adjust to the, the changing times. What's, what's your take when you look at sort of things? from uh, well, a that's just, you know, Obviously, well, I just, I'm just one voice with my opinion. I always thought that closing state street would be a great idea, right? Now that it's happened, I think it's a terrible idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the reason is, uh, so I realized so much of the community transpired passing through there. Uh, and, and now we, we've lost our, our two major parades to, to coming down uh, State Street. And they, they just, uh, so that, that idea really, really bothers me. I, I don't, I kind of, this whole idea of mandates, state mandates is, I don't, I don't know, I don't know what to say about it. I'm just a little old historian, but I'm seeing places where they're going in, you know, uh, it just, just seem to me it'll be devastating and will lead to overcrowding and so forth. But that's not up to me to decide. I, 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 I do think that the Presidio is a place that could, could be, a, you know, if, if more work is done there, it could be a really fantastic downtown park. I do believe that, uh, I know this is going to bother some people, that we need to get the cars out of De La Guerra Plaza. Uh, we, right now, it's just a parking lot with some nice grassy areas, but it can't become a public space when it's all grass. Uh, I mean, we, we see what happens to it during Fiesta. Uh, they come in and uh, after just a, a week or so of, of people on the, on the grass, then they have to close it off for, what, two months or whatever it is to grow the grass back. So I'm for uh, a, a plan that... Uh, would reduce the amount of, of grass in the area. I'm, I, it's going to upset some people. I can't help it. But I've also seen the plazas of Europe, spent a lot of time in Spain. And these are those are big public places. And I do think something like this being proposed needs to be done. I, I won't comment on the specifics of the fountains and so forth. But I do, I do think reducing the amount of grass is probably some kind of hardscape has is, is got to be done. And I, I do think that once that is done, and if they do remove most of the cars, except for delivering things, trucks and so forth, that the Daily Guerra House will become a real prominent thing. You know, I just I just had this thought, you know, I don't know if, if you've been inside the Alacama Theater in yeah. recent time, but, it, you know, they used to have this wonderful mural on the back wall that nobody used to see. And then when the trust went in and took the, the seats out, now that mural stands out. And I had this feeling just now that that if we got the cars out, that the De La Guerra house would become one of these places that people would see and appreciate as they walk by that community. Mm-hmm. So that's my two cents on it. Just <laughs> obviously, I'm mostly interested in those places where I work, but good luck to the efforts that are going on now. It just seems like they can't seem to get a decision made on the De La Guerra Plaza. Let's, let's hope they can soon. Yeah, talk about lots and lots of meetings. We're definitely watching that in real time right now with Delaware Plaza. Yeah. Hey, uh, before we wrap up, I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit, take me back in time to you and your love for history and where it came from. Uh, we obviously were young, and some of us have many options. Some of us uh, know what we want to do right away. We changed careers. We figured it out. Some of us never quite find our calling. How is it that you became a historian? And and just talk a little bit about why that appealed to you. Okay, well, you know, 
I've told this story so many times. One of my friends says, don't tell it again. Well, here I am telling it again. <laughs> um, and I, I, uh, I studied German literature at UCLA and then did a lot of traveling. And then I, I, when I graduated from UCLA, I started working at the LA Times, selling advertising of all things. First college graduate selling advertising at the LA Times. Then I went to Cal State LA because I was bored and started taking some classes. That included some history classes. And uh, a couple of professors there said, you know, you, you you should go on and do a PhD. And I didn't take it too seriously. But one of the professors at Cal State LA lived in Santa Barbara, of all things. And um, in one of his one of his tenants in his cottage was a professor, Harold Kirker. And he said, I think you should do a PhD. And he connected me with Professor Kirker. And uh, Harold's, by the way, the book that we have is dedicated to Harold Kirker. It was kind of happenstance. And at that point, um, I thought I was going to be like maybe a, a teacher thinking uh, uh, so, or something foreign service because I, I was pretty fluent in German. I'd lived there uh, in the 60s and um, then later on moved to Germany in the, in the 70s. So sort of backed into being a his, historian, but I love it now. And I realized that when I was in high school, I hope we're doing this within a time from i i was always pretty good with history i mm. mean it was the classes that i really excelled with mm. excelled in so that's how those things happen i'm sure in your most of our we there's a lot of happenstance in our although that's not entirely true i knew a, i have an architect friend who wrote the forward of the book wayne donaldson he knew that he wanted to be an architect when he was eight years old i didn't know what I wanted to be at Eagers. I think I wanted to be a baseball player. I <laughs> the Dodgers. The Dodgers were moving west, and I wanted to be a. Do I wanted to be a Dodger. I think. <laughs> anyway, but here we are. Yeah. Well, I think many of us wanted to be a Dodger for a certain period in time, and um, just just you know, sort of to kind of close the loop loop here a little bit on sort of this this history concept. You you obviously were integral to this whole presidio uh, uh transformation and uh revitalization project and you had this incredible career what do you what is your next plans what are your goal what, do you, what what are you focused on next what what are you going to do well uh joss i'm 79 years old so uh, <laughs> 79 years young it. let's say that yeah. uh so uh, what i'm doing is a lot of writing uh, mm -hmm. on uh, so besides this book, I, I finished a manuscript on the Getty Villa down in Malibu. And I was good friends with the person who was the mastermind behind that, Norman Neuerberg. He's an art historian who started out as a as a art historian of the missions. Then he became uh, uh, interested in Roman architecture. And that's how he got involved with Mr. Getty. So I've written a manuscript. I'm going back to that. I'm going to try to tinker with that. It's, again, it deals with huge controversy uh and i'm trying to get the getty to to publish it but it doesn't always make the getty look in good light but generally it does because they had this brilliant guy who who made that a really interesting place so i finished that and the third thing i'm working on are my my german memoirs uh and i'm just starting doing that i spent uh, a lot of my life studying german history and the and the author thomas mann and his house now has been uh, bought by the German government down in Pacific Palisades and been restored. And so I'm working on his life and um, my connection. We, My family and I lived in Germany for 
in Europe for a total of about six years. So I'm kind of writing that up. And so I'm busy. I'm writing. That's kind of mostly what I'm doing and enjoying life. Well, great. Well, I appreciate you taking time today to to share, you know, the story of how you came to write your book and why it matters and what people can take from it. So um, always a pleasure to, uh, to talk to you and, you know, get a little bit of a history lesson and download from you. So I appreciate it. I just like to just say, if people are interested in the book, I hope they'll go to Chaucer's because they, they really have invested. It's one of the best things still going in Santa Barbara, that bookstore. And I think, uh, if they're interested in purchasing the book, they have lots of copies of it there, and that would be a good. They also have it at the book den out in Montecito and Solvang, but uh, and I encourage people to do that uh, because we want to keep our bookstores alive, don't we? So anyway, yes, we do. It's it's uh, such a shame. Uh, we were recently uh, traveling in, uh, in Davis, and we found this little bookstore, and uh, it was amazing. It was like this little uh, independently owned bookstore. And it kind of reminded me, but they actually had uh, newspapers and magazines and it was so the slice of life from, uh, from history. So yeah, definitely support Chaucer's and uh, my my wife's my wife's a Davis graduate when they had 5,000 students. Okay. (laughs) It's much bigger now. Yeah, for sure. All right. Dr. Gerald Jackman. Thanks a lot for your time. Good luck. Take care. Uh, Thank you, Josh. I really appreciate your interview. Thank you.